you may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You have made some changes, haven't you? I got my little secrets. Yeah, I can tell. Can you help me, please? Can we help you? Yes, ma'am. Well, then I'd like you to check my motor. It whistles. I don't blame it. What did you say? Oh, forgive uh, my friend, miss. He's very young. We'll be very happy to check your motor. I call a real sporty model. Oh, I agree. A beautiful line. Count? Oh, yes. Uh, that's how it started out, working on sports cars. Well, no wonder. Well, is it serious? I'll tell you one thing. You know, she got a lucky break when she stopped in here. Oh, yes. Start her up, champ. Yeah. Yeah, let her rip. But I simply don't understand I'll why make it simple, ma'am. Your motor's broken. Broke? But it was running perfectly when I pulled up here, except for the whistle. Are you sure you're a mechanic? Sure I'm a mechanic. I mean, you got here just in the nick of time because we're going to dismantle this whole thing. Completely. It might take a whole day. A day? Maybe two. Well, if you have to. Well, it, can you lend me a car until you have mine running again? Well, we'll do better than that. I'll be happy to drive you wherever you want to go. And why should you go to all that bother? Because around here I'm known as your very bothering mechanic. I'm sure you are. 
Be right back. I'm sorry. You know what you've done? What? You don't even know the girl's name. Or do you? You could have at least taken a look at a registration slip. I had no eyes for a registration slip. My eyes I were I know on. what your eyes were on. <laughs> we don't even know if she lives here or not. She could be a tourist for all we know. Mr. Jackson, trust my instincts in these matters. She could be in one of the shows. But after all, what difference does it make, my friend? Unfortunately, you are on your way to Los Angeles, and I have to work on my car. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we have no time to search for a beautiful girl. I guess you're right. Good luck. Good luck to you, too. Hi, I'm Bob Bondurant. I won the World Manufacturers Championship in the Ford Cobras in 1965. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hello. Hello. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstudiomotorsports.com, and if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, where you can hear all 400 and some odd shows. Actually, last weekend, we just celebrated our ninth year anniversary. I'll be okay in a minute here. I'm losing my mind, as usual. Uh, this is the one hour a week that I sit down in the studio and I forget forget about all my worries. I forget about all my cares. I'm just uh, a little old radio show guy. And uh, but anyway, uh, we've got a pretty good show for you now. We've got a great guest coming on, very interesting and very historic guest coming on a little bit later. So in the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of jaw jack a little bit about uh, not much of anything because not much of anything is going on right now. Uh, the past weekend, well, let's just talk about the Florida FLA Car Shows Minute. And, as usual, there's all kinds of car shows going on all over the place. And uh, if you want to find out where they are, in South Florida, in North Florida, in East Florida, in West Florida, definitely check out flacarshows.com. Now, this past weekend, being the third Saturday of the month, they had Cars and Coffee at the DuPont Registry and the Dimmit Auto Group Cars and Coffee, which is actually turning into one of my second favorites after Reeves Import Motor Cars, which is the first Saturday of every month. Because they have Krispy Kreme donuts. Yes, sir, ladies and gentlemen. Because Krispy Kreme is located on 4th Street. And Dimmit Auto Group is located on Gandhi, which is right around the corner from 4th Street, which is probably not even more than 10 minutes away to get those delicious, tasty Krispy Kreme donuts. In fact, I need to work on getting Krispy Kreme to be one of my sponsors for the radio show. But then I would probably be 350 or 400 pounds. And uh, full of calories, full of sugar, and wired all the time. But hey, that's uh, maybe not a bad thing either. Uh, you know what I'm doing here is, I don't know about you guys, but I sell a lot of, uh, one of the things I do, and of course I'll reiterate this, is I do diminished values, total losses, and appraisals. And so I go out and I basically uh, visit body shops, I visit uh, 
uh, personal injury law firms. I, pitch, uh, I visit uh, repair shops, you know, things that uh, anything that would be kind of related, classic and antique car dealers, anybody that kind of might have a tie into what I do uh, on the professional side, which is, again, writing these reports and determining valuations for cars, boats, motorcycles, uh, rolling stock, which would be loaders and trucks and heavy equipment, all that fun stuff. So, which is fun stuff, quite frankly. I kind of miss the days when I had my junkyard and I had my Cat 930 and my Wyndham and my forklift and all the other mm, toys of destruction, toys of mass destruction we had, yeah. And uh, which was kind of fun, you know. Being in the wrecking yard business was, was the good old days. Of course, you know, industry's changed and now it's gotten to be a big boy thing and a big corporate thing and the little guy just doesn't survive as much. Although, although, when you go out in the middle of nowhere, oh, nowhere, nowhere, blah, 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 beep, beep, beep. Timbuktu, so to speak, you on occasion find uh, the uh, remote junkyard out there. In fact, years ago, a friend of mine had a uh, catalog or magazine or a book or something. And I may have mentioned this on the show before. I'm not quite sure. I don't remember because, you know, as you get older, your memory goes south and uh, way south. And um, at any rate, there was this book. I always wanted to get a hold of it. Somehow he found it. I think he found it at Swap Meet. And it listed, apparently... All the wrecking yards and junkyards and salvage yards across the United States. That would be a truly fun, fun trip to just be able to explore all those salvage yards. I don't think I'd, I think I would be gone and you might not see me for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. I don't know how I would survive, but, uh, uh, or what I would, how I would exist, but uh, it would definitely be uh, an excursion of a lifetime, especially for a junkyard parts junkie like me. That would be a lot of fun. Of course, you would be compelled to want to save everything, and you couldn't because there's not enough uh, time or money. But uh, it would be a fun, fun trip just to see that stuff because it truly is. It's a, you know, like we talk about, we had Bill Warner on our show last week, and we celebrated the ninth anniversary, and we were talking about um, Amelia Island. And he basically said, and it was, and it was written, and we kind of quoted it, and it, that, his feel, his uh, show feels become his canvas, and he paints his canvas and decorates his show field or highlights his show field with his cars. Well, and it's, and it's living history, you know, living automotive, living, breathing, running, driving, gasoline-emitting history is what it is, you know. And with all the sounds and all the, you know, the experiences, you know, short of uh, being on an actual road or a racetrack or something like that. But it's fine because people do start the cars up from time to time. And you can sit in the cars, you know, some people will let you do that. So you get to actually experience them. But to see them, you know, generally you're only going to see them in a magazine uh, or you know, on TV or something like that. But to, to actually see them in life and touch them in real person. Well, those cars are generally restored. They're always in nice, nice, nice condition, you know, top, you know, number one, number two conditions. But when you're in a junkyard, you know, it's kind of like they're neglected. They, you know, what people don't realize, and, and I say this all the time, but some people kind of get it. Car, true car guys get it. Cars have a soul. You know, I mean, you look at them and they kind of, you know, they talk to you, you know, you get in the car, you experience it, you know, it experiences you, it's, it wants you to drive it, it wants you to have fun, it wants you to shift it and clutch it and, you know, rev the engine up a little bit and do that kind of stuff. Well, when you see these cars in, in the junkyard, and they're sitting there and they've got years and years and years of, of dust and rust and, and, you know, decay and, and but they're but they're somewhat original, uh, unrestored, unmolested. You know, just like time forgot them. It's just really cool. It's you just, it's artwork in itself. Um, you really have to stare about it. There's stare at. It. There's a publication I saw a long time ago, and I forget what it was called, but it had 
loads and loads of pictures. And over the years, there's been a number of guys, and you can find it on YouTube, you know, where people basically, you know, they talk about barn finds and stuff like that. But the junkyards, you know, um, vast, vast accumulations of old cars. And I recall I was in um, New Mexico one time, and I was chasing flying saucers. Har, har. I was in Roswell. And um, so uh, we come in peace. That's what I was told. But at any rate, so they had a number of junkyards out there. And the one guy that I met, his I can't remember his name exactly, um, kind of a familiar name. Jenkins was his name, Mr. Jenkins. And this is going back probably 20-some odd years, early 2000s, late, uh, late 99s and stuff like that. He basically was within a reasonable driving distance from the military base out there. So, you know, as we all know, you know, military service people, you know, they're on base for a while, and a lot of them get transferred out or transferred in or relocated or whatever. So a lot of times they can't take their vehicles with them. So the vehicles would stay there. What amazed me is when I was in the salvage yard, how many of those vehicles were literally unrestored, not crashed, original survivor cars. These cars, he would go down there and he would pick them up. I don't care if it was a 1960 Dodge Polaris with all the cool stuff on it, or a 1958 Etzel, or a 1929 Ford, or, you know, Model A or something like that. Or he had Packards in there. He, I mean, I didn't see any Duesenbergs or any big-name stuff like Auburns and, and things of that nature, but I saw a lot of Fords. I saw a lot of Chevrolets. I saw Imperials. I saw a lot of muscle cars and lots of muscle cars. I mean, Torino's. In fact, there was a couple 428 cars in them with factory tack and gauges. But he wouldn't sell any parts off the cars. If you wanted anything, you had to buy the whole car. And I think he had one guy that came in from Sweden at the time. This is in the early 2000s again, you know, when Camaros were hot and the market was kind of taken off again. And they had like nine, nine or ten first-gen Camaros, 67 to 69. And he sold all those cars to one guy. He had 50, 50s Ford retra- 57, 58, 59 Ford retractables in there. He had 61, 62, 63, 64 full-size Impala SSs, Galaxies, uh, XLs, uh, 427 cars. In fact, there was a junkyard down the street that had two 427 Galaxy four-speed car coupes in their yard. There was a 442 four-speed car, 68, totally stripped out. Just, But, you know, when you look at the cars, you go, wow, you know, what kind of life did that car have, you know? And the thing about the salvage end of it is at least if you can go in there, you can get these cars and part these cars out. You can give them, you know, life again. You know, you're kind of resuscitating a car that needs work. You might not be able to resuscitate or bring back the life, the car that was there that you're using parts off of, but at least they're going on to somebody else. So it's like a donor car, you know? And, uh, but I just, I, I take it kind of personal. I'm really into that kind of stuff. I like the cars and I still enjoy going to junkyards. Um, there's just not a lot of them around here, you know. I, like I said, there's a couple up in uh, in North Florida that are still out there, and you can find some old 30s, 40s, 50s stuff in there because the old timers are still there. But it's not going to be long. So, and I can only imagine what's up in Wyoming and Montana and even places like Canada, the Dakotas, probably New England. I was told that up in Maine, for example, there was a few junkyards up there that had an amazing collection of cars. Again, you know, usually within a reasonable proximity, and I'm giving you guys a hint here. Usually within a reasonable proximity of you know, military bases whether it was Navy, Army, uh, Air Force, or anything like that, you know, there's a lot of cars that were left there, and, you know, those cars got uh, picked up, and hopefully they don't get crushed. So uh, if you got spare time and you got some spare change, let's go junkyarding. And on that note, I think what we're going to do is fire up the stereo. I think uh, Tommy's got something queued up here. Oh, this is one of my favorite songs. Since we're on the Elvis Presley thing, here's a little spin-out. Hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. Crowd your clothes, spin your wheels, 
Then you're gonna know how it feels to spin out. Spin out. Better watch those curves. Never let her steer. If she can shake your nerves, boy, then she can strip your gears. She'll get your heart going fast. Then she'll let you run out of gas. So spin out, spin out. The road to love is full of dangerous signs. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years experience with classic, vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport, 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Hey, we're back. You tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, about junkyards around the country. So, something else that I do in my other spare time, uh, I list a lot of stuff on. Uh, let's see, what's this thing called? Craigslist and Let Go, uh, Facebook, and I think there's one other one called Offer Up or something like that. But I always get a kick out of. Uh, I go to Craigslist free stuff, and it's always never ceases to amaze me um, what you find on there. Some of the stuff I can kind of talk about. I mean, you know, when a guy's got a box of Depends on there for sale, you kind of go, okay, chickens. You want some free chickens? Obviously, there's tons and tons of pit bulls. A couple kittens, trees, mattresses. I just like, uh, wow. But there's been some funny stuff. And I was looking earlier just to see if I could find something that would, I would, that would be... Uh, rather comical to talk about but i not didn't have too much luck this time uh here's you give us a little more info on those depends <laughs> <laughs> hey wait a minute uh baby diapers you know all kinds of stuff i'm mean, here's something that's kind of interesting here is two 
and it says circa 1920 printing presses. Now that's interesting. And now I'm in uh, Craigslist, Mobile, Alabama, and this guy's got an ad on there um, in California, IA. So you just never know. But you click on it, and what's interesting about these ads, which I love to do, which is always interesting, is like, for example, I'll click on the printing press one, right? So then I scroll through a couple of the pictures. I'm always looking in the background. It's kind of like when I walk into uh, a shop. You know, I, I go in there maybe to go look at a car or a part or something like that, but my eyeballs just like have a tendency to wander. You know, it's kind of like that one clip we play every once in a while with um, from the movie Gone in 60 Seconds, the second version with Nicolas Cage, where the guy's talking about cars and, and Nicholas asking, you know, what other cars do you have? And, he's, and he says, do you have a Ferrari 250 uh, GTO or something like that? And he says, uh, well, we might have one in the warehouse. And then, of course, his next comment is, what else do you have in the warehouse? So that's generally my comment, you know, like what else you got there? So when I walk in, you know, I'm looking in the rafters, I'm looking in the corners, I'm always looking for something interesting. Well, it's the same thing with the pictures. And oddly enough, I am not the only one that does that because when I get calls on my Craigslist ads or let go or whatever, invariably I get somebody who says, well, in the background I saw you had this Mustang or in the background I saw you had this uh, valve cover. It looks like a Cobra Jet valve cover or something like that. So nevertheless, they always call me and they inquire about that. And my buddy IG just walked in. Hey, IG, how you doing? And uh, he's saluting me. And uh, so at any rate, um, so that's kind of how that works. So, uh, you know, uh, anyway, but definitely check that stuff out, you know. And, of course, you know me being a parts junkie. If you got any rare car parts out there, anything unusual, give me a call. You know, you can uh, go by my website and you can uh, reach me through there. And uh, send me an email, send me a text or something like that. My phone number's on there. And, uh, you know, I'd be interested. And like I said, I do appraisals on stuff. You know, I, I do specifically rolling stocks and cars and stuff like that. But I, there's a lot of other things that I'm pretty familiar with. I'm in old vintage pinball machines. I'm definitely in the vintage electric guitars. Uh, I, in fact, I, had a, I got a car right now. A guy called me up and uh, swapped me out a, a couple guitars and some amplifiers and stuff. And uh, so, you know, and, and, and you, you kind of negotiate the deal, and this is the way it works. You know, you, you have to discount yours, and then you have to get his, and then you end up discounting that, and then you ultimately wind up with a few Franklins in your hand. That's kind of how it works. But at any rate, I think uh, what we're going to do is I think we're going to fire up the stereo again there, and then we're going to get our guest on because the gentleman that's coming on right now is uh, legendary. I've known him for a while. I met him probably... 25, 30 years ago out in California at one of the, uh, one of the car meets. I won't reveal which one. Uh, very legendary guy. Just a cool guy. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this interview. So stick around. In the meantime, we're going to fire up the stereo, and we're going to have our guest come on. Hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that dial. We will be right back. I took my Right. 
Special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine. Cruise downtown and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Baby, what's that? It's a movie. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Is that you in that beautiful car? Jeez, what a waste of machinery. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. 10, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, rock, we're gonna rock around 10 o'clock tonight. But what did you say? Someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. And I bet you're smart enough to get us some brew. A ballpoint pen, a pint of old Harper. Okay, you got an ID for the liquor? Not until I left the car. You'll have to get it before. Oh, well, I, I also, I forgot the car. We're finally getting out of this turkey town. You just can't stay 17 forever. You ever get tired of going steady with somebody that ain't around? I'm up for grab. Well, that'll be the day. If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. Get your boogaloos out, baby. The wolf man is everywhere. You know Toby Juarez? We killed him last night. Excuse me, I think we've had an accident. Well, I won't report you this time, but next time, just watch it, will you? I can dig it. It's one of those great old movies about romance, racing, and rock and roll. Oh, American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? and AeroVault trailers. Listen to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the best automobile show in the Southeast. Okay, we're back, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is legendary and worked for my all-time favorite uh, car organization, Shelby American. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Alan the Executor, Grant, and he is part of the factory race car team for Carroll Shelby that won the 1965 World Manufacturers Championship. Alan, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. So I played a little clip from American Graffiti, and I had to do that be- because there's a connection there. And I would love for you to tell everybody the story about your connection from, you know, American Graffiti. I'd be delighted. Uh, I grew up in Modesto, California, and there happened to be a little movie maker, uh, George Lucas, that uh, grew up there also. Uh, I was four years older than he was, and uh, so we never went to school together, but we belonged to this little sports car club called the Curie Wall. 
and I uh, got to know George, and uh, we ended up going to, you know, probably 100 different autocrosses in Northern California. And then when I turned 21, uh, I took my AC Bristol and and uh, went through driver's school and ended up in Northern California and Southern California, won 12 out of 14 races, and George went to every single race with me, all the way from Del Mar, San Diego, to Seattle, Washington. That's incredible. Now, take the story a little bit further, because he also had something to do with the graphics and the paintwork, and he was like your uh, your crew chief. That is correct. In fact, uh, you know, I first, uh, uh, you know, went to work uh, for, for Shelby, you know, of course, I went down there and offered my services as a driver, and Shelby uh, was uh, kind of looked at me and said, well, he says, have you ever driven before? Well, that was the wrong question to ask me. I told him about every race I ever won, and <laughs> was his only 12 out of 14 races. And he said, well, and he said, I don't need drivers right now. He says, uh, but I do need some welders. Can you weld? Well, fortunately, when I was, uh, you know, going preparing my AC Bristol and was going to junior college, I worked in a welding shop, and I was an excellent welder, so I went to work as a welder. And uh, so consequently... Uh, then they found out I had a couple years of college, and they moved me upstairs, and I shared an office with Peter Brock right next to Carol Shelby's. And part of my new job up there was to, you know, order cars, Macy cars in England, and also sell cars to the dealers throughout the U.S. And Coventry Motors in Walnut Creek was my biggest dealer, and they called me up one day and said, hey, we want to buy a race car. And I said, well, Jay, Jay Brown was the owner. He, I said, uh, only have one rebuilt factory car, and I'll sell it to you under one condition. And he got real quiet, and he says, well, what's that? And I says, I drive it. And, boy, it really got quiet. And so then uh, I told him, I says, furthermore, I says, you got to put up an extra $500. And I said, I want to build a special engine. I want to blow off the factory team. I said, uh, and that really got him excited. So I called George, and I said, George, I said, Company Motors is going to buy a car and and uh we're going to race it and going to blow off the factory team and so he jumped in his corvair came down i was living in santa monica and uh, he slept on my couch and and uh, i still have an original drawing that he actually drew uh, of the yellow cobra and uh so anyhow he uh, we decided that we the reason we picked it yellow was at the time the factory cars were dark dark blue and black they weren't the guardsmen blue and white like they turned out to be in 65 and 66 and so consequently uh george says i want to make this different and so consequently instead of running the stripes from front to back we came across the hood and back at a 45 degree angle dave friedman in his books says that's the prettiest racing cobra prettiest racing cobra of all the whole bunch so that's kind of the story for that now, what's interesting is, uh, okay, so you race that car, and George, there's an interesting picture with you and George Lucas sitting in in, in, in that car, and uh, with your name on the side and his name on the side of it as well. And uh, what people don't realize is that George Lucas actually was a uh, serious car fanatic, and, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, did he not also go to the Art Center of Design, too, College of Design? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, I wasn't uh, sure, because I, I know he was real good friends with Pete Brock as well. Right. And, uh, in fact, Pete Brock, once the, when George was at USC, uh-huh. you know, he was doing some movies for, you know, his uh, one of his projects at USC, and and Peter Brock, you know, you know, uh, found cars for him and actually 
you know, drove for it is, is THX eleven thirty eight. I believe it's the movie that they actually did together. But you know, they are close. Huh. Um, tell us a little bit about um, your early racing career, because before that, you were were you. Now, the, let's talk about the movie American Graffiti. There's there's a correlation there with you because when George Lucas wrote that movie, even though Milner was a kind of a drag racer, there's you were basically the inspiration for that movie, weren't you? Well, yes, actually, not necessarily me personally. Uh, as far as uh, John Milner, right. the thirty-two Ford, the yellow thirty-two Ford, that's what he, uh, in his biography, uh, basically asked George whether or not he projected himself into any of his characters in his movies, and he said, "Well, probably not, but subconsciously, I probably can't." And so the biographer asked him. He says, "What about John Milner in American Graffiti?" And he says, "Oh no," he says, "That was Alan Grant." He won every race he ever entered, and uh, uh, I, you know, he was my hero, and I wanted to be like him. Wow, that's cool. That is really cool. Yeah. And 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 the yellow thirty two Ford probably is a correlation because he liked yellow, and your race car was yellow. Absolutely, yes. Okay, cool. And, and the, actually, the, the American Graffiti was actually based on us dragging Tenth Street in Modesto. Tenth uh, Street was a two way street and had Sears and Pennies and Woolworths, and they all had these big glass windows. And we'd work on our cars, you know, and then we'd, at night we'd go down and and we'd actually drag 10th Street because we could see the reflection of our cars, you know, in the windows. And furthermore, being a two-way street, you know, the girls would come there and they'd be in their car, and of course we'd be able to look at them. And then we'd go down to Burgess Drive-In, which in the movie was, uh, uh, well, I forget the name of it. Is anyhow, bottom line is that... Uh, We'd go down there and have a cherry coke, and and uh, and then afterward, my buddies and I, and I was driving a fifty Pontiac. My buddy had a fifty Ford, and et cetera. Would when we'd leave at night, we'd have a a, a game of ditch, and so you'd actually would kind of head out through the city and go through the city blocks and try to lose all, all the rest of the guys. And I had this fifty Pontiac, and whenever I'd do it, of course, fifty Pontiac had a cast iron straight eight. In the, in, in the front was very, very heavy, and when you go into a turn, you know, you, you start breaking half block where you get to the t- corner, and then you turn, and then you wait a few minutes, and then all of a sudden it finally goes around the corner, and the car goes, <laughs> and so, and uh, anyhow, that's uh, that's really, then my good friend, Jeff Puccinelli, uh, in high school, his dad bought him a new MGA, and there was a couple of other rich kids that had Triumphs and Porsche Speedsters and things like that, and one Saturday they were going for a ride up in the foothills, and uh, Jeff asked me if I wanted to ride along. And so I said, absolutely. So on the way back, he asked me, he says, would you like to drive? And I said, absolutely. And I got in that car, and I could not believe it. I'd come up to a corner and put on the brakes, and it would actually stop, turn the wheel. It would actually turn. It didn't, cars didn't squeal. The car did not lean. And I was hooked. And that's how I got into sports cars. Wow, wow, wow. When you first started working for Carroll Shelby, you were in the welding shop, and I think as the story goes, they introduced you to Phil Remington. And Phil Remington, he's been on my show, and, and, and he, was, he was absolutely an amazing guy. He didn't really have any formal training, but he just was just naturally good at everything he did, and you know, they referred to him as the engineer. What were your experiences with, uh, with Phil Remington, and how did he influence you? Well, I'll tell you, when I, I drove down during semester break to offer my services to Shelby, and uh, he asked me, you know, it told me they were looking for welders. He actually took me back, introduced me to Phil. Phil is the one that actually hired me. And actually, I started, initially, I was in the production car 
uh, shop, and uh, I was actually welding sway bar brackets onto the frame because early on the, the cars from AC did not have sway bar brackets. And, of course, we most people wanted the sway bars on the cars. And then, of course, uh, after work, I would go over to the race car. After I'd get off at 5, and I'd go over to the race car shop and, you know, help out, you know, for two, three, four hours until everybody left. And I got to know Phil extremely well. Uh, in fact, Phil, I admire him. And I tell you, he is the single most important person, you know, that that, that was the success of Carroll Shelby. There would have never been a world championship. Ford G, Ford, the Ford would not have won Le Mans three times. I mean, uh, uh, four times in a row if it hadn't been for Phil Remington. Because... Ford Motor Company, they leaned on him big time. And I, I was fortunately, you know, I've stayed in contact with Bill, and I was able to spend you know, about four hours with him at his home, you know, about three or four weeks before he died. So, no, Phil, I totally agree. I mean, this is one incredible man. Ole Olson, tell us about him, because I heard Carol Shelby said to me when Ole Olson left, he took about 40 horsepower with him. They To this day, nobody knows where he got that extra 30, 40 horsepower for the 289s. <laughs> oh, you're, you're right. Only, uh, in fact, it's really kind of ironic because uh, when I uh, when I went down during semester break, you know, I went to the went by the Venice uh, shop at night, and uh, I, I, I could see the lights on in the building, so I drove around back, and the windows were open. And so I stuck my head in the window, and, and Oli was there with another guy named Frank. And Oli says, hi, guys. What, you know, you want to come in and see what's going on? And I said, absolutely. And so he let us in. And I can still remember like yesterday. I kid you not. I thought it was a doctor's hospital, you know, surgery room. Everything was so clean. And Oli was so precise. His tools were in his toolbox just absolutely laid out perfect. And Oli was, you know, he talked slow. Yeah, but, man, he was methodically very methodical and uh, he knew what he was doing so we became very very good friends and that's the reason why you know that uh, that uh, when I, we built a special engine uh, he put the only touch on it and uh, we had we had a little more horsepower than the factory team interesting interesting somebody said that when he left uh carol shelby in 68 that he went to home in the moody is there any truth to that or 67 whenever it was do you know I don't think so. I've never heard that. Okay. Uh, but actually, when he left, he worked with Lucas. Oh, he did? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. He was actually worked for the movie companies because uh, I don't know if you remember that, that Hertz uh, commercial where all of a sudden, you know, some guy comes flying out of the air and lands in a, uh, in a, in a, a Mustang for Hertz. Uh, he was one of the responsible for that. And, uh, and then he helped George, you know, in a lot of his early college uh, movies. So. It, uh, they, they were they were very close. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Tell us about uh, so your early career. You know, you you were dead set on being a factory team driver and really proving yourself to Carroll Shelby. So perseverance, your perseverance, you've got to be admired for that. I mean, that's because it paid off. I mean, eventually when you went out there and you did as well as you did, and then to be able to race in 1965 the Daytona Coupe. Tell us about that. Well, I, I, I take a step backwards. Okay. Uh, you know, once we got the, you know, the uh, the Cudmery Motors car, the the executor, our first race was up at uh, Santa Barbara, and it was uh, George and I, and my dad came down from Modesto, my brother, and uh, 
And so consequently, there were 30 Corvettes, including Billy Krause, and I mean, all the top drivers. And I'll tell you what, you know, I'd never raced a Cobra before. And so, I mean, I was sweating it big time. And the worst part about it was uh, the Corvettes all had these gummy recaps. And uh, they were actually, I, I couldn't get within a second of their time. And finally, I realized what was going on. And I had a very good friend actually go up to uh, Oakland and pick up a set of Bruce recaps and brought them down. And so I actually started on the grid, you know, uh, about 15th. And so here we were, fortunately, Santa Barbara's an airport course. And, uh, and Shelby personally drove up by himself to see me in my first race, uh, all the way from, from Venice up to Santa Barbara. And so he kind of took me aside and he says, uh, so what's going on? And I, I, I shared to him about the tires and stuff like that. And he says, he says well, he says, you know, he says, that my advice is, he says, be careful. You know, these Corvettes are out to get you. And so uh, I would just, you know, cool it through corners, you know, and then pick them off in the back straight. Yeah, I said, yeah, that's my, that's my plan too, Carol. So I dropped <laughs> the flag and I damn near ran over that Corvette. And so I had to swerve to the inside and I passed 14. Corvettes going into turn one and I passed the second one going into turn two and they never saw me again and uh, of course Carol was able to see me drive there and then we went up to Candlestick Park in San Francisco and again they used to race in the parking lot and, uh, and that was the first race and uh, I literally I won both days up there and uh, actually set the fastest time even of the modified cars and then the big race it was the next uh, couple weeks later was at Riverside in October 63, and here I was racing against Dan Gurney, Bob Bonder, Lou Spencer, the factory team, and I'd never raced at Riverside before, and we had this new engine in there, and during practice, we had tightened one of the lower radar hoses, and it came off, and so I got very little practice, so I qualified fourth, so Richie Ginther and the GTO Ferrari was right next to me, and so my goal was is to drop, when they dropped the flag, I had to get a good start, which I'm an excellent starter, and, uh, and then get behind Gurney, because nobody knows Riverside like Dan Gurney. And so they dropped the flag, and I went. Gurney got a good start. I got a good start. I went right between Bondurant and Spencer. <laughs> we, we got up into turn six, and Dave Freeman captured this in a whole series of, of photos that is just phenomenal. And, of course, Bondurant was pissed that I got around him. And so I was in a full drift going into 6B, right on Gurney's tail, and he tapped me. Spun me out into the infield. I had to wait for all 30 cars to go by. And my whole dreams had gone up to smoke because I was very vocal. And I had told Shelby and I told everybody at the shop that I was going to blow off the factory team. In fact, they used to call me Cassius Clay because I was, uh, wasn't was afraid to tout my skills. <laughs> and uh, so anyhow, I went from dead last to second place in an hour race. And the announcer just went crazy because I was a bond, uh, uh, gurney, a coil wire fell off. And so he was, the, but he was able to put it back on, but obviously he was about a lap out. And so I went, uh, and the announcer went crazy, you know, determining whether or not, who's this Alan Grant, this yellow Cobra, you know, is he going to be able to catch Bonder at, you know, oh, he gained two seconds this lap. And in the meantime, the crowd was going crazy. Shelby was standing in the pits watching all this. And, you know, when the, the race ran out, and uh, Bondurant won. And had the race lasted one more lap, I would have won. And I was so pissed, I was gonna, I was gonna punch him out. I, <laughs> George, Lucas, and my dad, my brother, they all said, "Calm down, calm down." He said, "You couldn't have got more exposure if you'd have led from start to finish." 
And that, that is so true. And so consequently. So the next race is up at uh, Laguna Seca. Uh, 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 Shelby was going to send some factory cars up there. He said, but you're going up there so you can handle it. So uh, I went up there and I actually finished uh, first in the A production race. I finished first in the GT race. And then I entered the modified race and finished seventh overall. So, but the irony of it was, it was, uh, I'd learned a couple of months earlier that I was going to get drafted from a good friend of mine whose mother was on the draft board. And so I had joined the Army Reserve. And guess where I had my basic training? Fort Ord. Ford Ford. <laughs> right there. Perfect. And so consequently, so consequently uh, uh, three weeks later, here I was in a column of 600 men on an all-day march carrying an M14 backpack and the whole works. And guess where we go? We come up over the hill, go down by turn nine, up by turn eight, up turn six. And just, you know, weeks before, here I was. Laguna's my home track, and so when I won those races, I mean, I, I was a local hero, and I was written up in the San Francisco Chronicle and the whole the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, talk about a, a, a comparison. I've thought about that my whole life, you know. Timing and place is so critical. But anyhow, the L.A. Times, when they wrote the article about the, the race at Riverside, they wrote through it, and the comment was, and Grant went through the field like a constipated bull. So they, <laughs> Dave Friedman, the author, he loves to tell that story. Then you went to Le Mans. Or actually, you well, went what, to Daytona and Sebring first, right? Let me back up just a little bit. Okay. Okay. So I had to go into the service. And Shelby had promised me, because I made him commit, you know, if I blow off the factory game, I get to drive for the team. And he said, oh, yeah, no problem. And, well, I was in uh, basic training. I didn't get out until May. And so consequently... You know, Shelby had the USR team all put together. He had Bob Holbert, Dave McDonald, and Ken Miles. And I knew there wasn't going to be a, I would, he wouldn't break up the team, you know, uh, to let me drive. So I knew I wasn't going to be able to drive for him. But in the meantime, Bill Thomas, uh, who designed the Cheetah, had seen me drive at Riverside. And he had been calling me, and he wanted me to drive the Cheetah, uh, uh, that uh, the factory Cheetah. And so he was working with Alan Green Chevrolet out of Seattle, Washington. And so consequently, I went ahead and I actually I drove that Cheetah in the 64 season. Uh, and that uh, we the, the car was just an ill-handling beast, but man, was it fast and straight line. And so I was working with Larry Webb, and, and we uh, Alan Green bought us a, a brand-new Chevrolet uh, crew cab and with a camper over it, and then we were towing the Cheetah in an open-wheel car. And uh, we ended up uh, going, you know, back to Mossport, you know, at Riverside, Laguna Seca, several other races, you know, and that was the most incredible experience because I was actually racing with Jim Hall, and he was driving a white truck, you know, in his chaparrales, you know, on on open trailer. Bruce McLaren was just getting his, his McLaren Can-Am cars going. I know Bruce, I got to know him very well. In fact, I ended up, you know, working with him at, in 65 at, at Monza in uh, the Nuremberg Ring in 65 when we won the World Championship. But that, uh, we were able to get that going pretty good. In fact, I still hold the track record at Laguna Seca for the fastest front-engine car, of course, on the old track. And uh, But at that, at that race, Shelby came up to me and said, Alan, he says, I want you to come back to work with us. And I said, we're going to go to Europe next year. And he says, I want you to drive for us. And uh, I said, well, Carol, I says, I really want to have the same deal that Dave McDonald had. I says, I really would like to prepare my car and drive it. And he says, that's exactly what I had in mind. 
Of course, what Carol knew is the fact that he was going to get a race car driver and a damn good one for the price of a mechanic. So, <laughs> so anyway, I went back there in November. I literally went to the airport when the cars came back from the Tour de France. And uh, I picked the CSX 2300. And to me, it's got the prettiest lines and, and it's uh, the, the prettiest car. And, uh, and I took it back to the shop and uh, basically took it all the way down to the frame, built it back up. Uh, Pete Brock claimed that, you know, that that car was not just a race car. It was actually a concourse car. It is, I mean, it was perfect. I did a lot of things to that car that other people, they didn't do. And of course, they were hot. And so they got three air scoops on the things. And so when I put my scoops on, I doubled the height of them. Uh, and so I got a lot more air. And so also I, what I did is that I did not like the, the cable throttles on those things because the technology of cables in those days was not good. And so you had to put a very, very heavy spring return spring on those. And so it was very difficult to really flip the throttle when you're healing tone. And so I did that. I actually designed it and had Phil, you know, uh, he helped me with that. And, um, uh, then also what I did is that, you know, I, I put a cloth seat in there. I put a, a padded cloth seat because the Nagahide, you, you get in there, you get hot and you sweat and the whole kit and caboodle. So anyhow, that car was phenomenal. And so anyhow, bottom line is that we got ready to go to Daytona in, in the 65. John Morton was loading the, the uh, cars. Well, mine was the last one to load. And this is an open, you know, uh, a car hauler. And the, and, and the, uh, the ramps were very narrow because they were just for street cars. Of course, we were running you know, about eight inch wide, so the, the tires would barely fit in there. But John, what he was doing, he was you know, slipping the clutch to, to go up the top. Well, mine being the very last one, you got to get to the top, but you can't go get, you got to get stopped before you run into another car. And so I said, hey, I want to load my own car. And they said, fine, go ahead, go ahead. So I basically got back, you know, about 18 inches you know, from the ramp, revved up the engine, tried to clear the, the Weber's out, and I took off, and I got about uh, seven-eighths of the way to the top, and I knew I did not have enough speed. And so I tried to give it just a little bit of gas, and the Webers didn't take. And so I gave it just, you know, I was slowing down. I was giving it a little bit more gas, and it didn't take. And so I gave it a little bit more take, and all of a sudden that engine lit up and spun the tires, and basically, it, you know, of course, when it spun, it went off to the side and started sliding back. Fortunately, between the two ramps, there's a three-quarter-inch steel rod that connects, holds the two ramps together. And as it went back, the outrigger off the frame of the Cobra caught on that. And anyhow, long story short, and that damn Dave Friedman, you know, he had his, he was working in the little office right there on Carter Road. And uh, he came out there, and of course, then everybody in the entire shop came out there. And I thought my racing career... It ended before it began <laughs> with Shelby American. But you know what? You know, I was really pissed when, when um, Friedman first published that uh, that picture in, in one of his uh, books. But now it's famous. But, uh, yes. You know what? One of the things i got to share with Carol Shelby. I, I love that guy. Alan, and again, like we are just about up against the clock. So what I would like to do, if you're game for this, is I would like to have you back on next week. So we can do part two of this. Would you be up for that? Because we're right about, we're just about out of time, and uh, absolutely. And then you can finish this, and then we can we can talk about how you became the loader. (laughs) 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 
Are you game Sounds for good to me. Okay. Well, Alan, I want to thank you very much for coming on Nostalgic Queen and Cars. Thanks for taking us some time out with us. I know you're out there in California and you're busy, but you're in Southern California. You're in beautiful Palm Springs out there. So uh, look forward to having you on next week, and we'll do part two, and you and I will correspond in the meantime. How about that? Awesome. Thank you so much. I want to thank my special guest, Alan Grant, factory team race car driver for Carroll Shelby and part of the World Manufacturer Championship Racing Team, 1965. Great guy. Great stories. We'll pick up and we'll talk about Daytona, Sebring, and Le Mans. Hey, don't forget to check out our, our show every Tuesday night here on the Time Talk Radio Network between 7 and 8 p.m. on, yeah, WTAN right here. If you want to find out more about us, visit our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter. I think we're on Instagram, too. And I want to see some of you guys in the car shows, swap meets, races. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.